Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Let me know when you hear what category we're talking about right now. You ready? Here it comes. Friends. Seinfeld. MASH. Gosh, I hope you're figuring this out right now because here comes the fourth and final question. Everybody loves Raymond. Of course, we're talking about some of the great sitcoms ever produced. And that final one I just mentioned, Everybody Loves Raymond. We have the opportunity and the honor of interviewing one of the stars from it today. Her name is Patricia Heaton. Patricia plays one of the characters, the wife of Ray on that show, but she's so much more than some actor on a sitcom. Yes, she's been wildly successful in that career, but this woman is a philanthropist. She is a mother. She is a spouse. She's a believer. She's an overcomer. She had a difficult upbringing, and yet she went on to fail her way forward through nine years, nine years of difficulties trying to become an actor, of wondering what actually mattered in life, and then coming face to face, not only with what success looks like, that's great, success, but about significance. I could spend the majority of your day bragging about Patty, but rather than doing that, I think I'm just gonna bring her on right now. So grab your journals, grab a, a little something to drink, get comfortable, get ready to take some notes as we bring on my newest friend, and now she's yours. Her name is Patricia Heaton. Patricia, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Well, I feel like I'm having a friend on. I was watching you last night on television with my wife on a show you may have heard of. <laughs> Everybody Loves Raymond. So apparently you're still running Everybody Loves Raymond episodes in St. Louis, Missouri, along with Around the World. Many people are used to you and familiar with you from that uh, exposure. But you're also an author, among other things, right now. Can you just give us a snapshot into what your life looks like today? Well, um, with the pandemic, um, we've been locked down in LA for a while. Uh, I was actually um, with my husband in Oklahoma City when everything started shutting down. We were producing, financing, and my husband directing an independent comedy. And um, we had five days left to go when we had to shut down. So it was pretty frustrating. And we've tried three times to get back there. And we've not been able to do it to finish the movie. So, um, so I've been hanging. I had three of my four sons with me here in LA. So that's been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we, we're fortunate to be in LA. It's pretty sunny. The weather's just beautiful. Everybody has places to hike and a place to swim. And, you know, so it's, it's not been the experience that say people in New York have had through the pandemic. Right. Tell me about the, uh, having your three, three of the four boys around all the time at a, at a time in your life when you probably were not expecting that. What's been that, what's that been yeah. like? I dealt with being an empty nester, you know, mm -hmm. I'm charging forward and then all of a sudden everybody's back. But of course we love it because we, we know the boys need to get out and be independent, but we really love hanging with them. Yes. And, and so um, it's been great. I mean, the only downside is one of them every night comes in and says, what's for dinner? And I keep reminding him, <laughs> this pandemic doesn't mean we're, we're, we're back in middle, middle school and that I'm cooking every night, you know? Um, and we're, we're kind of actually, for a pandemic, we're kind of busy doing a lot of different things and getting stuff done. And um, so, but it's it's been, 
you know, terrific. Our youngest actually just went back to Ohio State. They opened up. So um, he's excited for his senior year. And um, yeah, so it's been wonderful having them. Wonderful. So let's back up to Ohio State and even a few years before that. I'm going to go, I'm going to go all the way back to Bay Village, Ohio. Yeah. It's your birthplace. And I'd like you to share a little bit more about your upbringing. Can you talk about your dad and, and uh, the kind of influence that he was in your life growing up? Yeah, um, both my dad and my mom, you know, are super uh, Catholic. And um, my mother was one of 15 children. And I have about 100 first cousins on my mom's side of the family. So in fact, a year before last, I was in a restaurant here in Los Angeles. And the bartender came up to me and said, I think we're second cousins. <laughs> and I said, I, you know, there's a good chance of that, but do you right. have any proof? And he pulled out a photo and he said, this is my grandpa Bud. And I said, oh yeah, that's my uncle Bud. And I'm like, hey, cuz, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so we've come from a, a very, you know, large family. Um, my father was a sports writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and covered the Browns uh, for 25 years. Um, he's actually in the Football Hall of Fame in uh, Canton, Ohio for being the top sports writer, I think in 80, 1980. Yeah. So, um, we, you know, we had a really lovely upbringing, very devout family. Um, it went to Catholic school for most of my upbringing. Um, and then my mother died suddenly when I was 12. So that kind of threw everything into disarray. Um, in that time in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of therapy to go to. Um, to help deal with grief. So, uh, and being an Irish Catholic, it was the kind of thing where you just sucked it up, right? And moved forward. So <clears throat> that left quite a mark, as you can imagine. Um, it's, actually, it's actually a wonderful thing to happen to someone who's gonna end up being an actor, because it certainly gives you a lot of pain and emotion to draw from, even for comedy, actually. Um, you know, because all comedy is, is pain. Uh, and so, um, so I think, uh, but I'm going to ask you about that because I'm curious what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, and C.S. Lewis has a, there's a phrase called a severe mercy. And I feel like in some ways my mother's death was a severe mercy um, because I don't know that I would be where I am if that event hadn't happened in my life. Obviously it would have been, I would have loved it if she were still here with us. But as a Catholic, I know I'm going to see her again. So, um, you know, it's just a matter, it's just a matter of waiting um, for her. So I, I have four children, my young, three boys, and then oh. the last is a little girl. Her name is Grace and she's 10. The idea of her losing her mom in two years is overwhelming, right? right? Like the pain of that in our family, but also the pain of that in her life. How, how did you personally at that age begin weathering yourself forward through this adversity? Um, I didn't really do well. Uh, that was when I was 12. By the time I was 16, I was uh, in a depression and it was manifesting physically. So I was uh, having headaches and I couldn't get out of bed. I was having really debilitating headaches, couldn't get out of bed. And um, my dad took me to the Cleveland Clinic and uh, they said, you know, physically she's fine. She's just depressed. So they gave me um, medication for the headaches and then, um, you know, my dad did something on the way back from the clinic. He pulled into this like denim store. Yeah. And he said, why don't you buy yourself something? And this is a guy who's always very nervous about money. So I saw that he was trying to do something to help. And I remember buying this, this pair of I remember it very clearly because it never happened in my family. This thin whale corduroy bell-bottom pants, you know, and, and it wasn't so much that the purchasing helped the depression. It's that my dad recognized there was something wrong and was trying to help, mm. you know, in, in the way he knew how. And he didn't have the tools, but he was trying. So that actually is he, more healing than you know, maybe talking to a therapist, although a therapist would have been great. Um, but I knew he, he saw me, he knew I was struggling and he was trying to do something about it. So mm -hmm. that was the most, you know, helpful thing 
at that time. But I, I have to say, I went through a very difficult time in college at Ohio State. And then when I moved to New York, I really struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts for about at least eight years, you know, um, through college and, and th through many years in New York. Um, and I, I, thankfully, my Catholic faith would never allow me to harm myself in that way. So um, I think that that was such a protection for me that I, no matter how suicidal thoughts became, I would never act on it because of my faith. And, you know, at that time, we were told that anybody who committed suicide was going straight to hell, right? Uh, in, I don't know if that's how you were, were raised. Absolutely. But, and so um, that just, you know, thankfully, I don't, the church doesn't say that anymore. But it was kind of a good thing at the time for me because it kept me from really doing anything. To it myself. kept you in the game. So you went to Ohio State University. You're struggling yes. a little bit emotionally yes. and relationally at that time. Yes. You eventually graduate. What, what was your hope at that time? I know eventually you're going to work in Cleveland at like a mob style <laughs> restaurant. We'll talk about that all, all episode if you'd like. What was your dream? You're 21. What was your goal? You know, I had been a journalism major until the middle of my junior year at Ohio State, and then I changed into theater. And my dad was fine with that because he didn't believe I would actually pursue theater. And I didn't know how I was going to do it myself. And I was working at this, this restaurant, The Blue Fox, in Cleveland. And um, my, my high school friend called me and said, hey, I'm moving to New York. Do you want to come? And immediately I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't think twice about it. Uh, didn't know where the apartment was that she had found in New York. I was going to meet her there. She was driving from Chicago, I think. And so um, I just went home and said to dad, I'm moving to New York. And he said, oh, no, you're not. And I said, well, actually, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, I'm going to go. And so graciously, he gave me $800 and basically said, okay, good luck. Now, I can't imagine me doing that today with my kids, you know, just handing them, you know, not knowing that I had a job anywhere or where I was going to live. My brother was, my older brother, Michael, was in New York at the time, but I didn't really see him much that first year. So it was my friend Kathy Thomas and I um, were... Well, luckily, you became an overnight success with acting. So, <laughs> yes. uh, that was easy for you. Nine years later, you almost immediately became an overnight success. Would you share with our listeners some of the odd jobs you did while you were pursuing the craft? Yes. Um, I was fortunate to, to be living above um, a little empanada and ice cream shop. And so I worked there. Um, and then that the owner of that res restaurant, Judy, owned another restaurant on the Upper West Side. So I started hosting at her restaurant. La Tablita, which is an Argentinian Italian restaurant. I didn't know that such things existed. <laughs> um, and then I was working at one. Um, I used to work at a, um, another restaurant where they had singing waiters and waitresses. So we would get up on stage and sing and then serve. Um, I modeled shoes for the shoe shows that came in town four times a year. The buyers would converge in New York from all over the country. And then we would model the styles that were coming out that season. Um, I ran the Xerox machine at People Magazine for a few years. Uh, that was actually quite a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I, I did a lot of restaurant work. I worked at the Parker Meridian Hotel and room service from 6.30 a.m. until noon. Um, and, you know, I had to pay for those headshots and had to pay for therapy. I finally started going to therapy when I got to New York. So that was a good thing. Was that helpful? Yeah, um, there was some really, you know, dark times. You, it was almost like people who deal with depression know this, but it would, you would feel it coming on like someone was like pulling a shade down and you could say, oh, here it comes. I can feel it. And <clears throat> I just remember, I mean, I would get, try to get to a therapist right away. You know, sometimes it was just, I was calling on every saint I could think of. It was like Jesus, Mary and Joseph and St. Patrick and St. Francis and, you know, St. Sebastian, anybody I could think of, I would just be calling on the saints to like protect me from this thing that was happening to me, you know, and it, it weirdly, um, it would work. Like I would, I felt very protected, um, but it, it was, um, it was really, really tough. It was a tough time. And I also had a wonderful time in New York. It, yeah. My world had really opened up. So was there great, there were great highs and great lows. 
um, yeah, I'm thankful that I, I got through it. Nine years, I think is, is what I understand in Manhattan, yeah. nine years of failing forward. What, what kept you going for almost a decade? I would get enough encouragement along the way. Um, for the, the shoe company that I was working for, he asked me to come and work for the company, company permanently. And he said, you know, I was going to be a lawyer, um, but my dad showed me that, you know, it made more sense to work in the shoe company. And, and he said, I know you want to be an actress, but, you know, this is a stable job and you're going to be really good. And I had already had people come up to me and just say, you know what, there's something about you that's really, I know you're going to be successful. And that kept me going. Um, even when people were sort of suggesting that maybe this time, you know, it's time to, to pull the plug on the acting thing. Actually, I had, I had gotten a, um, a, a job in a chorus of a black gospel musical on Broadway. It was written by the, the Winans family, who are a big black gospel family, B.B. and C.C. Winans and the Winan brothers. And, um, and I called my dad excitedly and I said, hey, I got in this Broadway show. And he said, well, you're not going to quit your job at People, are you? And I said, Dad, I'm running the Xerox machine here. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but what about your health insurance? And I said, well, I'll get insurance through the show. So, um, you know, I, there wasn't an understanding from my family of what I was pursuing, because there's nobody in my family that is in the industry, okay. entertainment industry. So, I, you know, um, I just would get enough encouragement or enough success here or there that was meaningful enough to keep me going. And also the jobs that I was working, I never lasted more than six months because I just couldn't, there. I, I always had to move on. You know, I just either got bored or disinterested and needed to do something different. So I wasn't, the, I didn't have the personality to be in like the same job for the rest of my life in an office. That just wasn't my personality. So I understand why you weren't passionate about running the copier machine at people, although it's a fine job. Yeah. Why the passion for acting? What was it about acting that had your heart? I just was doing it since I was little. I would, you know, be at a family gathering and I would sing for everyone. I mean, they had to stop me because after the fifth <laughs> song, they were like, okay, that's, that's fine, that's good. Um, in, in second grade in particular, I don't know why second grade, but I would go, out in the playground and make up a song. And then I would come back and I would announce to Sister Delrina that I had a song I would like to present to the class. And, and then I memorized the whole first Barbra Streisand album. And I sang a lot of Barbra Streisand songs for my second grade class. So um, that, I was just automatically doing that. I was, I was a big, big reader and I would finish a book and then I'd gather the neighborhood girlfriends and we, 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 do the book we'd play the book i did sign characters to people and um you know we'd act them out so we were always always doing those things and then at that time this is in the 60s um musical re cast recordings of musicals were something that almost everybody had in their house so we had the musicals of um west side story and yeah. south pacific and oliver and so I had all this, I listened to those all the time and I would sing them and, I, and our girlfriends would sing them on the playground and we would act them out. And so that was just who I was. Uh, and Shirley Temple was my favorite, you know, movie star. I loved watching her. And so uh, it's just not something I chose. It's just something I am sort of. So this calling is going to not only attract you to New York, then it's going to send you to the far side of the country over to LA. Mm -hmm. Why did you pick up and leave New York? Well, at, around the ninth year, it just started feeling burdensome to be there. It was becoming very hard. I, I, did, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. I had produced a play that I was in and it got some good reviews in the New York Times. And my now husband, then boyfriend, was going to LA to do a movie. And he said, hey, I have a frequent flyer companion ticket so you can have it and come out and maybe produce the play in LA. So I, that's what I did. I had one commercial running 
Um, I think it was for Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. And I took the residuals I got from that and I produced the play with myself in it in a small theater in Hollywood and invited casting directors to come and see it. And they did. And I started getting auditions even though I didn't have an agent. So, um, but there was actually a pivotal event that changed things for me in LA. And that is, we joined Hollywood Presbyterian Church uh, when we came to Los Angeles. And we went on a, just a, like a three or four day little mission trip to Mexico. And in all that time I was in New York, I was pursuing the acting and pursuing the acting and I felt really mad at God that no doors were opening because I didn't create myself to be this way, he did it. And so I was like, why would you do that to me? Why would you give me this desire and, and shut all the doors? And when I went to LA, I thought, you know, I'm gonna give it like a year or two and then that's it. Cause I, I can't do this anymore, it's too painful. And we went on this trip to Mexico and we worked with these kids. I don't speak Spanish, although I'm learning during COVID. Um, and I, the kids didn't speak English and we fixed their lawn and fixed their sewage and we had a little party for them. And when I came back, I had this really profound sense of peace. And I realized that I could go back to Mexico and work at that orphanage for the rest of my life and be happy. And that was the first time that acting wasn't the center of my life. And I realized that's the problem, that there were things that were the center of my life uh, that weren't God. And so for me, I realized I needed God to be the center, not acting. And so I was living in my cousin's girlfriend's mother's back bedroom in Hollywood at the time, at the age of 30, super successful, right? right? Rocking it. <laughs> Rocking it, right? rock in the West Hollywood scene. Um, and um, I just, I kind of knelt down in my, in that back bedroom. And I just said, okay, Lord, if you want me to go to Mexico, um, I will do that. But I had started to get auditions. So I said, either you could shut that down. If you want me to go to Mexico, just shut the auditions down. But as long as they're coming, I'll do them. And I'll take that as a sign that that's what you want me to do, but I'll go to Mexico. I'll go back there and work at the orphanage. So that was my prayer and um, the auditions just kept coming. And um, I, you know, I'm sitting here today talking to you after doing a number of sitcoms, two of which were very successful and continue to run and continue to find new audiences. But the beauty of it is, you know, at that time, for, to me, it was an either or thing. And I realize now that in God's timing, um, he gave me both because I'm now a celebrity ambassador for World Vision. And then I've traveled to Zambia, Uganda, Rwanda, Jordan, um, and was on my was supposed to go to Guatemala until the pandemic hit. And so I realized it's it I, I didn't God didn't make me make a choice. He just gave me the acting first, and then used that platform for me to be able to raise awareness for World Vision. So he gave me both in ways that I could never have imagined. Mm. I couldn't have imagined the career I have now, and I couldn't have imagined traveling to all these countries, which I plan on continuing to do. So, you know, his, his abundance is just unbelievable, really. We, we've had a couple comedians on our show, and when you do improv, and you probably know this, but when you do improv, the answer to any statement as it leads into you is always, yes, and. Yeah. So no matter what you say, my answer to you is yes, and, yes, and. Uh -huh. I've had a couple deep, deeply spiritual friends who said, I think that's how God works. It's like, yes, and. It's not either or, or this, that. It's right. yes, and. It's, it's a yes, and uh, yes. answer to our request frequently in life. We just don't see it uh, in yeah. real time. And that's what takes, you know, it takes, uh, obviously, real faith that God is there that he knows you because he made you and that you um, just have to trust even in the, the darkest times and which a lot of people are going through right now. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's having that foundation for me personally has, has been a lifesaver really. You mentioned the orphanage, I think it's called Sparrow's Gate. Yeah. What was it about that experience that so radically changed you like from the inside out? 
think there was, you know, it was, we were just doing like physical labor mm -hmm. and we weren't really able to communicate. I wasn't able to communicate with the kids really other than playing, throwing a ball, smiling, you know, we, I think we had a little party with a pinata, that kind of thing. And I just think being completely away from the entertainment business and being completely of service to others mm. uh, just cleared my soul and cleared my mind. And it was, there was a lot of camaraderie, you know, the group of people that we went with, I remember thinking, some of these people are so strange that we're driving to Mexico with, you know? <laughs> and I, you know, I just thought like, who are these Those people? people, yes. Those people. And then by the time we, we finished, you know, a couple of days, we went to a, a restaurant in Tijuana and we're just eating steak and drinking beer and just having the time of our lives. And I thought, I love every one of these people, you know? So it, it, was, it was such a wonderful experience and um, it freed me from this slavery I, I had to this acting career. And it just made the career much more fun because I, it, I no longer depended on it for my identity mm. and to give me a sense of value. Um, because listen, I just lost a job. Like if my value was in, you know, whether the shows were successful or not, I would be in deep trouble, but because this, you know, Carol's second act was canceled. So thankfully, that's not where my, I get my sense of peace and purpose and value. I love doing what I do, but right. I, it's so unreliable, our industry. Patty, when you returned from Mexico, Paps Blue Ribbon, man, you were killing it with that one commercial, but w when did you recognize that, wow, I think these doors are beginning to open and this is the calling? Well, I got an audition for a show called 30 something, which in yeah. the early nineties was the hit show to get on. And I did not have an agent. And um, it happened because this um, wonderful man, Jack Tempshin, I happened to meet him. I think the second day I was in Los Angeles in a copy shop, I was copying my resumes and he was waiting for some stuff to be copied. And we struck up a conversation. Well, he was also from New York. And we knew some people in common. And so we started talking and he said, I know the casting people at 30 something. And I, this is another one of those little bits of encouragement. He said, I can tell from talking to you that you're a good actor and call them and send them, tell them I recommended you. And, and, and so I did. Um, and they called me in and they said, Jack always recommends great people. Hmm. And I auditioned for one part. I got it. And then it was cut. And so they called me in again for another part, uh, which was the OBGYN to, to the women on the show. And it was initially just a one-off episode. Uh, and then it turned into about seven episodes. So mm. thankfully the first one that I auditioned for that got canceled didn't go forward because this one turned into a longer you know, running arc. Um, and I remember after my audition for it. And I was just saying medical terminology. I was just being the OBGYN. And Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskowitz, who created and ran the show, just said, where are you from? Like, why haven't we ever had you in here before? Hmm. And I said, I just moved here from New York and whatever. They, and then they actually called me later and said, you know, you're great. And we would love to have you back on the show. So it was another one of those encouragements that I thought, um, I, I think this might work out. It might not, but it might, you know. So it was, as I said, it was those kind of encouragements that got me going. Now I did, as I said, about seven episodes of that show and um, I still didn't have an agent. So I was getting this work without an agent. So God was really showing me that he's in charge. Like if, if, if he wants me to be on the hottest show at that time, he will make that happen, um, agent or no agent. What's about to happen, everybody loves Raymond. That's the show that I was watching just last night with my wife, Beth. Yeah. Man, it's good. When you had your first read through of that show, what were yeah. your thoughts? Well, the first time I read it before I auditioned for it, I read the pilot and I thought, oh, this is really funny. 
And I'd read and auditioned for many, many shows. Raymond was actually my fourth sitcom. So I had three failed sitcoms before that. And I could just see it was making me laugh out loud. And interestingly enough, just two days ago, I was cleaning out our garage and I had a box of Raymond scripts and I picked them up and just started reading them. And I was laughing out loud again, like I did at those table reads. And like we all did, they were such funny shows and they're still funny. And I texted Phil Rosenthal and I said, I'm going through these scripts and it's like, I've never seen the script before. I'm reading it and laughing out loud, you know? And I was actually in these shows. So, and I begged him to come back to comedy, which someday I hope he does. Um, he's got a wonderful show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil. But um, I really want him to write something for me. Uh, so I'm working on that. But um, so, you know, I, you, I, it was just immediate how you could see how relatable and funny. And I was in that place that Deborah was when, we were doing the show. So there, it didn't require any research on my part. Right. You were living it. I was living it. Yeah. Um, you, you had children at the time or no? I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I was pregnant with the third one on the first season. So that was really tough. Um, did, you, did you have a similar mother-in-law? No, you know, my <laughs> British mother-in-law is the, was, is, and was the loveliest person ever. And she was just kind and sweet and uh, the boys just love their Nana. So yeah, that, I didn't have that situation. So last night, the episode was you trying to be nice. You were trying so hard to be nice to your mother-in-law for an entire day. <laughs> and at the end of it, it has completely belly flopped. I, I was learning though, in researching not only that show, but uh, your, your career that those were all taped in front of a live audience. Yes. I assumed that that audience was piped in uh, post-production. No. What's um, it like for you? Do, do you prefer being in front of a camera or being in front of a live audience? It's probably it's, very it's different. different. animals. I mean, there's, so it's, that show is called a multi-camera show. So you have four cameras there, sometimes five, depending on the needs of the, of the episode. And uh, you rehearse for four days. And on the fifth day, you have the audience come in and you shoot it with them. And that's wonderful. It's like doing a play. You get to do it from beginning to end. So you get a sense of the whole thing. And um, it's, it's a lot of energy that goes into it with that audience there. Your adrenaline is really heightened for a long time. It's a little bit exhausting, but it's wonderful to have that response. So you really know what's working. And um, with The Middle, which is the next long running show I did, um, that's single camera. So there's no audience. You're, you're doing a lot of different locations. Sometimes you're on the sound stage. Sometimes you're out on location somewhere. You're shooting it all out of order. You don't know what it's going to look or sound like until you see it on TV. So it's a very different experience, but one I came to enjoy and I wanted to have that skill set. Like I had done multi for so long. I started on a show with wonderful Linda Lavin called Room for Two. So we did, I think, uh, 26 episodes of that. Um, so, you know, we started, I started with multicam and I hadn't really done that single camera stuff um, consistently. So I, I was good to, it was good to be able to learn that skill set because there's no rehearsal time in single camera. You, you're in the makeup chair reading the pages that you're going to shoot that day. And then you go out, you block with the camera and you start shooting. So it's, you don't have the days of rehearsal that you get in multicam. How do you personally not break character when you're in front of a, a live audience or a single camera? It, it would seem to me when you're saying something funny mm -hmm. and then you're looking across from someone who you know and you love, and you, I mean, it's hilarious. To stay stoic and steadfast and uh, sincere while you're dropping these hilarious lines, they're dropping them on you, the yeah. audience is cracking up. Yeah. How, do you, how do you keep that straight face? Well, first of all, you've had, on a multi-camera, you've had days to rehearse, so you're a little bit used to it. But secondly, the pleasure of getting the laugh uh, is what keeps you from laughing yourself. Like you wanna deliver it, because it's like you're giving this gift to the audience. It's yeah. like it's, it's this, this wonderful feeling of, you know, oh, they are going to love this. I cannot wait to say this line because it is going to get such a huge laugh. And it's like you're giving them a gift and you're opening it for them and you're waiting for their reaction, you know? And so that is so wonderful 
that um, you know you really want to deliver it just perfectly so that they get this the full effect of the joke. So as successful as the middle was, and everybody loves Raymond was, it comes to an end. Yeah. And those were two wildly successful shows. Not to mention the other parts that maybe for you were a little bit less successful. What is it for you as an actor, knowing that everything you ever do is going to come to an end? Yeah. Well, you know, like you're being judged on every line, every yeah. episode, yeah. and there's a lot of competition pursuing you. Yeah. And, uh, and things that you think are surefire hits, you know, disappear after 12 episodes. So it, I think it's the perfect way to live because that's life. Life is going to end. Your kids are going to grow up and leave. Your spouse is going to pass or you're, you know, I mean, your parents are going to die. I mean, your job is going to end at some point. Everybody's job is going to end at some point. Actors just have the advantage of knowing that every single day. And so you have to adjust your way of looking at life. And it's much better. You know, for me, the pandemic was like, oh, here's another, here's another <clears throat> thing that's crashing into our life and, you know, killing jobs and whatever. But that's been my whole life, I think. And as a Catholic, we've always been taught that life is about suffering. So when things are going really well for a long time, I'm always a little bit like looking over my shoulder, thinking, when's it coming? You know, and actually when these terrible things happen, I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. Um, so, and you know, having my mom die, I mean, I, I learned that lesson really early. So for me, it's been an advantage to being an actor because I think we're living in more of a reality of what life is and isn't than a person who has maybe stayed in their hometown and, and been at the same job and you get this false sense of security. Um, actors have no sense of security. And so I don't know how people who, who don't have a, a, a faith-based life go through it in this business because you can't rely on anything in this business. Um, but, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the person who does stay at home. I've thought about this a lot about people who, who stay in their community and people who venture out. And, we, and both of those people are super important because the people who venture out need to know that they've got that, that people back home have their back That's and right. that they have that, you know, that team um, supporting them. So that's super important. And, and I understand the value of it, you know, I was with, um, have some Orthodox Jewish friends and I was with, at an event before the pandemic with them. And that I admire and sort of wish I had more of that kind of com deep community where everybody really knows everybody else very well, the good and the bad, and they're all there for each other all the time. And I, Part of me wants that and part of me finds it kind of suffocating. So I, I have this constant struggle with wanting that security, but not wanting it to hold me back or hold me down, you know. I do. And it seems you've used your experiences to fuel not only your career, but your impact. Would you talk about World Vision? Oh, yes. Um, you know, my dad was always a very philanthropic person, even though he was super nervous about money. Every month I'd watch him pay the bills at the dining room table and he'd always be writing out checks to Marinol missions and, you know, different Catholic charities and things like that. And he was always trying to do kindnesses for people. He had some tickets to a ball game to give it to a family who did, couldn't afford to do that, you know. And um, so that was always in my mind that that's the way you need to live. And so when I got this, you know, was able to really have a platform to do something, I was looking, I had always done charitable work here and there, but I was looking for one organization where I could really put my time and effort behind. And World Vision is the largest NGO in the world, largest provider of clean water. It's a Christian uh, aid organization in about 100 countries. And 86 percent of every dollar, so 86 cents out of a dollar, goes directly to programs. And they have these area developed programs where they go in for 12 to 15 years and they stay there and make sure that the programs are sustainable in the community. So that was super important to me. 
you'll have people that very <clears throat> generously donate to a well somewhere and within five years the well isn't working because no one's taught anybody how to you know maintain it and keep it going whatever so so world so in, for instance world vision wells you know 20 years later it's like 80 percent of them are still working so um i saw that they were really transparent they're really effective and they go deep into these into these countries for a long time and so i've been traveling with them and and it's i'll tell you it's just so beautiful to connect with people now when i read the paper and i'm reading about zambia or rwanda or uganda or the congo i know where that is i know people there it makes me feel i don't pass over those stories anymore i read them because it's a, it's those stories are affecting friends of mine i have friends there now so um you know and it's encouraging because so much is being done so every, every 10 seconds people are getting clean water so and that's one of the most important things to being able to develop economically and as a family is having clean water because it affects your health it affects how much the hours of your day if you don't have to walk to collect it you know to have it clean means you're not going to be sick you have time to the kids to go to school and for you to start a business whatever so there's a lot there and um i'm very excited to be a part of it and made such wonderful friends and catherine Compton, who's my liaison, who travels with me, um, she said, listen, there's three things that Jesus is telling us to do here. Help the poor, help the poor, help the poor. And that has really stuck with me. And I felt that uh, that's what we need to be doing no matter what our circumstances are. You can always find somebody who's struggling more than you are. Powerful. You, you uh, have captured some of those stories, your own story, and among, I think, 14 other stories in your most recent book called The Second, or Your Second Act. Mm -hmm. Talk about why you wrote that book, Patty. Well, and my now canceled sitcom, Carol's Second Act, um, that character had gone to medical school after her divorce at the age of 50. So it got me thinking about people who have turned their life around uh, or had been forced to make a change. And so and I, the number of those people are friends of mine, and then I uh, worked with a researcher to find others. And really, this is a perfect time for this book because the stories are so inspiring. Almost all these people had some kind of problem in their life, a hurdle to overcome that they didn't ask for, they weren't expecting, and they were able to be successful going in a different direction. So you have everything from Tao Kapua, who's an NFL football player who became an opera singer. Um, you have Sarah Foley, who was a newscaster and then was, went into the beauty industry, got into an accident, became a paraplegic, and now is, has a, a company called I, uh, Disability Icon, where she helps people in wheelchairs stay fit. Um, you have Liz Smothers, who went from working in a bakery to having the Julian Pie Company and selling with Costco. Um, Dave Dahl was in prison and ended up creating Dave's Killer Bread, uh, which is in every grocery store in the country. Um, so you have a lot of different people. Um, Udi Bennett, uh, who was a TV producer, her autistic son, um, was the inspiration for creating a studio for people on the spectrum to be able to do computer animation. Uh, my friend Danny Modisette who's was so affected by her mother's alzheimer that she took her comedy experience and created a company called laughter on call to send comedians to work with alzheimer's patients with to great effect so there's all these different people in the book and more and, not, and some of these people you know just have mike monteleone was an industrial carpet salesman who became an actor through doing community theater and i met him on carol second act so there's you know small smaller um, stories and then larger stories of people creating companies, but the underlying message is um, you can do this and life is precious and um, you know it don't waste your time here do something that you're being called to do or that's meaningful to you or that if you're in a situation like this pandemic where you've lost your job there are ways to find a new way forward. Mm. I understand that you felt sometimes in comedy that you were doing work that wasn't life-changing and world-changing. And then you'd get little letters from people saying, you need to know, 
that our family was struggling and that your show, this episode, your character, whatever it might have been, had a profound impact on me. You've been receiving these letters now for decades. Is there a story or a letter or a chance interaction that was highly meaningful you'd like to share with our audience? Well, you know, there. it's funny because just on Twitter uh, yesterday, I think, there, there was a guy, I think his name is John Kim, who, um, <laughs> who he's, uh, what was he, an astronaut, Harvard Medical School, and something else. And, oh, and the military. So military medical school astronaut. And I, and I tweeted, retweeted it, and I said, and I tell jokes that pe other people write for me. <laughs> and, but I got a lot of response saying, hey, you know, you're making people laugh, and that's a really important thing. And there have been uh, letters, and people have come up to me and said, you know, my dad had cancer, and the only time during the week we saw him laugh was when he watched Everybody Loves Raymond, and we would do it together as a family because it brought him such joy and made him laugh. And so I realized, listen, we all have our role in life to play. And, you know, I think sort of being a court jester um, is, I'm very grateful to have that job because it's a lot of fun. But I, it's also nice to know that people are, people's spirits are being lifted. A lot of people told me they've been binge watching the middle also with their families during the pandemic and that it's just been an encouragement and that show was always super positive too and i think i've been very blessed that those two long-running shows have been about um, the importance of family and how through all our trials and tribulations the important thing is loving each other so mm -hmm. i think that's a, those have been perfect shows for this time in our life you know, someone asked you a question not that long ago on national television about why would you take the way they framed the question was almost like such a boring role, you know, mm -hmm. like just a middle-class mom, like what was so ordinary and unexceptional. And, and your response essentially was like, you know, I, I actually think it's extraordinarily exceptional to do this kind of work and to do it well and to bring laughter and love into people's lives in a very real way. And I, I just appreciate the fact that you have done that as a mom and that you've done it also as an actor. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it's for women in particular, you know, it's, I like the way that being a mother has been elevated. I think that's important um, because housewife was, was like, was like a dirty word. And, the, you know, listen, you're raising another human being. Anybody who has had kids, I'm sure they had the same feeling I did, which is like, I am so unqualified to do this. When I brought my first son home, I was like, I don't know. Who, who am I to tell anybody what to do? You know, I was modeling shoes a few years ago. I don't know what to, you know, how to raise a person. Um, so I think that, that that's been wonderful. And I think it's been too, a little too much pressure on women. It's like mom plus, you have to be something else too. And, and I think, um, you know, being a woman, being able to bear children is such an uh, astonishing thing. And the interesting thing, John, was I never, it's not that I didn't want kids, I never thought about it. I, I assumed somewhere down the road I would have them, but it was not my goal. And if I was not able to have kids, I don't know that I would have been necessarily bothered by it. But like in the second year of our marriage, my husband, I'd like this maternal thing started bubbling up, you know, and so we had one and then I was like, you are interesting. I wonder what another one would be like. And also I come from a family of five. And so I sort of assumed I would have a, something around that number. Um, and so, you know, we kept having them. And I, but I remember the first time I was pregnant, I was astonished because I could feel the minute you start feeling him moving in your body is a, a crazy feeling. And I really um, felt very much like a woman for the first time. I thought, oh, this is what I'm here for. This is what my body is supposed to do. And I felt very powerful also. It really made me just realize what a gift it was to be able to 
gestate and have another human being inside your body. It's like that movie Alien, you know, where that, that monster comes out of, of, of uh, what's his name? John Hurd. Uh, yes, I think John Hurd. Moment. Hurd, yeah, you know, it's like there's a thing in there. Um, and it's, they, a, it's astonishing. It's astonishing, you know. So um, I, you know, I just think that thankfully, you know, God kind of withheld the career stuff until I started having children. So the balance was there for me. And the kids were the most important thing. And my husband, obviously the marriage. Um, but it, what, the great thing was it totally informed the roles I was doing. Yes. Totally. It made them so easy to do. I knew exactly what these episodes were about because I was living them. And for those thinking that Patty Heaton is without fault or blemish, just know that recently she forgot her 21st year old <laughs> son's birthday. So uh, <laughs> they really have most of her act together, but it's not entirely put together. No. And, and thankfully, Ray Romano saved, saved, saved it. Um, because uh, the, minute my, the minute my son texted me and said, at the end of the day and said, well, happy birthday to me, I guess. <laughs> I just, I was upstairs, I shouted downstairs, Dave, we forgot Dan's birthday. <laughs> and I said, and it's his 21st birthday. I, I texted every actor friend I had and gave them Dan's phone number and said, could you please text right. him and wish him happy birthday. And Dave's, uh, uh, Ray sent a wonderful video, which I think made Dan's day that and um, Ashley Tisdale, um, you know, yes. FaceTiming him. <laughs> His, his college roommates were very impressed that these Patty, were you, you feel free to forget my birthday anytime you want just <laughs> okay, you, uh, okay. finish strong so yeah. my friend as we finish strong together we have seven questions that tie guests oh. together and it's been a blast having you on but they call these are called the live inspired seven i know you are a voracious reader the first question is patty what is the best book or the, maybe the most influential book that you've ever read Oh, I think probably, and this is like almost a cliche because every Christian has read it, but Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis was hugely impactful. But the other one was, was called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, which was one of the first self-help books that came out. Yeah. He published it himself to begin with because nobody would publish it. Uh, that actually really revolutionized me because that's the first insight I had into any kind of therapy and, you know, looking inward and thinking about how you think about things. So that, the, that actually the first one was Road Less Traveled and then I think Mere Christianity. Yeah, and Pat begins that book, you know, life is hard. Life I don't know. is difficult, yes, exactly. And that's what we need to start with. We need to know there's going to be problems in life. That, you know, as, as long as you know that, everything's kind of cake. Awesome, what, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Ohio? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I was pretty fearless growing up. I would just get up and without any compunction at all, perform in front of people. So I, and I think I'm much more concerned about, you know, being perfect, which can get in the way a little bit than I was back then. So it'd be better to have that sort of create creative fount going on and, and to, be out there not worrying what people are thinking about, or thinking mm. of me. If your home caught fire and your sons, your husband, the animals, they're all out safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's that one thing that you would, uh, you'd come running back outside with? Um, my, my KitchenAid mixer, I really love it. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it's this gorgeous yellow color. And I've always said like, that's the thing I would take when everybody else was safe. So the thing, the whole house is burning. The kids are outside watching. Mom comes through the smoke and she's got the mixer. It's yellow yeah. and it's in her hands. It's all yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. Patty, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? I think my mom. Um, I didn't get to know her. I only knew her as my mom from sort of a distance. And, you know, in your teens and 20s is when you start getting to know your parent as a person, as a separate person who had their own life and emotions and trials and tribulations. I never got that with her. So I would really like to talk to her about that. But I'll, I'll do that on the other side. Not soon, but I, I think that'll yeah, be a not soon. <laughs> beautiful conversation. What's the best advice that mom or dad or one of your coaches or your husband or anybody else has ever given you? 
recently, and then I think I, I just mentioned this, um, when Catherine Compton talked about, from World Vision talked about help the poor, help the poor, help the poor. You know, if you, if you have this, that part of your life where you're of service yeah. and everything else is kind of gravy, go, go and do, enjoy and try new things and whatever. As, as long as you're, you know, your center is on knowing that God is there. He loves you. He knows you. He's with you. Um, everything else is, is great. What would you tell your 20 year old self? If you could go back in time and whisper a little bit of encouragement or advice or a kick in the rear, whatever it might've been, mm. what would you tell yourself at age 20? I would have told myself to stop drinking and so much and to get more disciplined. I, I was not a disciplined person. And I, I learned, I learned from many different people to become more disciplined. And I actually have this, as of this past July, uh, it's been two years since I've had a drink. Wow. So yeah. And, um, and I just, I saw that it could become problematic. And so, and, and God really helped me just nip it in the bud. So it's, it's, I miss it. I, I really love smelling bourbon now, <laughs> but. Did you go through AA or some program? No, that you, you know, I just, I have a lot of friends who are sober and um, I just noticed that once the boys were gone and I didn't have a job to go get up to in the morning, um, I just was drinking. And every night I'd pour myself, you know, like a Campari because Campari doesn't count because it's not alcohol, but of course it is, you know, and, you know, a couple of Camparis and soda. And so it just in like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was a moderate drinker. Like I'd have a minimum of like two cocktails and two glasses of wine and I'm a small person. Right. So I just thought, you know, this isn't good. And I don't think I'm going to have grandkids for years because my boys don't have girlfriends and they're in their twenties and it'll be 10 years if I, you know, to maybe even think of having a grandchild and by then I'll be 72 and I need my brain to be solid. And so I just, I just said, you know, Lord, I really, I, I, I'm not going to be able to do it. So you're going to have to do it, but I would really like to give up drinking. And um, I, the, literally the next night I uh, was at a dinner party with my boys and my husband wasn't there. And like for over the six hours that this lasted, I was just filling my wine glass through the night, right? So it probably ended up being six glasses of wine, but over like six hours. And I felt totally fine, but I found like, I was trying to say this one joke and there was all my boys and their friends at this table. And I said, you know, in our family, it's a tradition and I could not pronounce the word tradition. And I can't even mispronounce it for you the way I mispronounce it. And I thought, what is, I feel completely lucid. So what is happening in my brain? Like there's some kind of disconnect in the synapses that the alcohol is doing. And I thought, hmm, that, that's, that's weird and scary. And the next day I met uh, one of my sober friends for breakfast and I said, well, you're the first person I'm telling, this is the day I stopped drinking. And that was two years ago. And I, it was like a gift. It was like, God just gave me this gift. And it's been great because you know what? Like women, there's a thing where uh, women in their 50s and 60s who've been moderate drinkers all their life have start developing problems with alcohol. And uh, it has a lot to do with emotional things. Physiologically, you can't process it as well after menopause and, you know, hormonally and everything. So um, I think it's, you know, for me, it's been great to, to not be drinking and to also have to just feel the feelings of getting older yeah. and having your kids gone and not sure what your relevance is in the, in the world as you get older. So, um, you know, and I, I'm sort of embracing having those feelings and embracing it head on and feeling the feelings and um, struggling with the change of identity within society as you get older. So it's, it's great, it's wonderful, it's a great adventure. I'm really glad you shared that part of the journey. I did not know it and I think many of us are, at a point in our lives where we need to sit up and, and wake up a little bit and make sure that we are alert, not just- right. uh, That's how I'm, exactly, that's exactly how I'm feeling, yeah. The final question for our friend, Patty Heaton is this. Patty, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? In the scripture, it says, well done, good and faithful servant. So I think, I hope that that can be said about me at the end of my life, I hope. 
Patty Heaton's successful actor, mother, spouse, sober leader, friend. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful friend. I really appreciate the time, the work, the impact. And uh, I believe as you do that the best days remain in front of us. Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. Well, my friends, that is Patty Heaton. She is a remarkable lady. I want you all to learn more about her book, Your Second Act. It's an amazing read. You'll learn more about her along with 14 of her friends. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies wholeheartedly believes that if you get the right people, the results will follow. They set themselves apart with a forward-thinking culture that empowers their people and fosters loyal partnerships. They are also proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of this podcast.